0: Turn, if you would, to the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. In case some of you don't know, Teresa is my wife, by the way. (laughs) My daughter and I had uh, play practice on Tuesday, and she came home and she said, that's the most fun I've ever had at play practice we learned how to fight. <laughs> she gets beat up. I get to beat up two kids. So, I mean, life's good, right? <laughs> Nobody, got Nobody got in trouble. Nobody got hurt. Rule number one. Several weeks ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He rode in to Hallelujah's But we know the story. We know what's going to happen. By the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. He got to Jerusalem, and he cleaned out the temple. He went into the temple and upset the tables of the money changers and those who were profiting by uh, converting the money and by selling the sacrifices. This really ticked off a lot of people. In last week's lesson, Jesus taught three different parables where he talked about the Jewish leaders' lack of fulfilling their responsibility. And it says that the Jewish leaders knew that he was talking about them. He talked about the two sons. One son said, sure, I'll go do what you told me to do, and didn't do it. The other one said, no, I won't, and he went and did it. He talked about the field that was prepared by the owner, and then leased to people, and when he wanted his share, they wouldn't give it to him because they wanted it all. And they knew, they knew they were talking about the leaders. As I've said each of the last two lessons, I wouldn't go so far to say that he's picking a fight with them, but he is no longer running away from it. And in fact, in the next chapter, he's finally going to take off all the gloves and he's gonna tell the religious leaders You're in big trouble. But in today's lesson, they're going to come to him and try to trap him. Three different groups are going to come to him and ask him questions. I mean, you know the picture, right? He comes to Jerusalem every morning, and he sits at the temple, probably on the steps out front, and he teaches the people. And last week they came to him with the question, or two weeks ago, and said... Who gives you the authority to do this? And he gave them a question about John the Baptist and then refused to answer their question. That's what prompted the three parables. So in today's lesson, they're going to come ask him some more questions. So let's pick up in um, verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just tells us what they're going to do. This is not an individual seeking after truth. This is not somebody asking a question because they want to know the answer. These are people asking questions because they want to trap Him. That is their goal. So what is the question? And they sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians, Now, that's interesting in and of itself. Herod was the king. The Herodians were the Jewish people who were in association with the king. They were helping the king. They were profiting by having the Roman ruler in place. The Pharisees, on the other hand, hated the Romans. They didn't want anything to do with the Romans. So the fact that these two groups came together to ask Jesus a question is pretty astounding. Because the question is going to be about paying taxes to the Romans. And it's a setup from the very beginning. I've got this group of Republicans here, and I've got this group of Democrats here, and I'm going to ask you a question, and one of these two groups is going to be mad at you. And that's the point. Because whichever group is mad at you is going to pounce all over you. So we have Pharisees and we have Herodians and they come to Jesus to ask him a question. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Now, that's a true statement. But coming from their lips, you know they're just trying to butter him up. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way, the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Caesar, head of the Roman Empire, ruled all the known world. Herod? was his underling and was responsible for collecting the taxes. I mean, they viewed all these colonies and territories as sources of revenue. We've had long discussions in here about the tax collecting system, which is interesting because Matthew is, was a tax collector. They hated the Romans and they hated the Romans taxing them. So the question is simply this. Should you or should you not pay taxes? Now I'll tell you the answers that they have. The Pharisees believed the answer was no. We shouldn't pay taxes to the Romans. The Herodians believed the answer was yes. So if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to the Romans... The Herodians are going to jump on him and then the Herodians are going to go back to Herod and say, we've got this rebel who is teaching the people not to pay taxes. And the Romans would come down and squish him. Now, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay the taxes, then the Pharisees are going to jump all over him and they're going to go to the people who hate the Romans and say, this guy is in cahoots with the Romans Don't listen to him anymore. And the crowds are going to leave. They've got him. This is the perfect political question. So how does he answer it? But Jesus, aware of their malice, he knew what was going on. He knew that this was not a question just seeking after truth. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I mean, he just tells them. He knows what they're doing. He's aware of the trap they're setting. He's not going to fall for it. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. We've had long discussions. A denarius is the coin that represented basically a day's wages for a working-class guy. And it was a coin That was produced at a Roman mint. It was stamped with the picture of Caesar on it. And you can find these coins today. It has Caesar's picture on it. That's why, if you remember three weeks ago, when the people would come to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifice and they had to buy the sacrifice and they would pull out their Roman coins and the Jewish people would say, you can't use that Roman coin to buy a sacrifice to present to God. You have to convert that Roman coin to a temple coin so, that you can use the temple coin to buy the sacrifice. And they were making a killing on that exchange rate. Okay? You might remember several, several chapters ago, Jesus had another encounter dealing with taxes. But in that case, it was the Jewish officials coming to Jesus. Actually, they didn't come to Jesus, they came to Peter first, and they said, does your master pay the temple tax? Every adult male Jew was supposed to give money to support the operations of the temple. And Peter says, well, of course he does. And then he ran off to Jesus. Hey, do we pay that tax? (laughs) So it's a different situation. That was the situation that Jesus said, sure, we do it because we don't want to offend them. And Peter went out, threw his fishing rod out, caught a fish, opened the fish, and there was a two, whatever unit it was, coin, and paid the tax for himself and for Jesus. So, the religious leaders are setting out to trap Jesus. He says, show me a coin. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. What is his answer? Now, I can tell you, if I were sitting on the periphery right here, at this point, I would raise my hand. I'd say, Jesus, I'm a list kind of guy. Okay? Give me a list of what things belong to God and give me a list of what things belong to Caesar so I'll have a clear idea of what belongs in each of these categories. He doesn't do that. People have debated for a long time what belongs in each of these two lists. All we're going to talk about today are the obvious things the obvious answers that I think we all should be able to agree on. Number one, there is a role for government distinct from that of, well, the church. This is where we get the idea that there is such a thing as church-state separation. It is legitimate for the government to require us to pay our taxes. And what is Jesus' answer? Give them their tax. There are those today, in fact, Teresa and I have been reading a book about some cult that this group didn't think you should pay your taxes. Now, their homes were foreclosed on and their cars were taken and all that, but hey. And then they went and killed people, but that's a whole different subject. There are those who believe the government does not have the right to tax us. They do, and if they have the right to tax us, you have the obligation to pay them. The government has a legitimate responsibility. We see that in Romans chapter 12. We can have long, long, long debates about whether the government is fulfilling that mission, whether they are exceeding what they ought to be doing. We can have all of that, but remember, this tax right here is to an oppressor that is occupying your country. So I don't care if you're a Republican and there's a Democrat in the office or you're a Democrat and the Republican's in the office. It doesn't matter. It's not as bad as a Roman soldier occupying your country. And Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now this is weird. Why? Because he's getting to the root of a big problem and that is we love money more than we love God. But that's a whole different topic. Do you remember Ted's sermon? Was it last week where he talked about giving? And he says, people always get in trouble when I start talking about giving because they think we only want their money. No. The truth is, what was last week's sermon? Where your heart is, there's where your money and where your money is. But we grasp it and we don't want anybody to take it. And Jesus says, give it to him. It's got his picture on it. It's got his name on it. Just give it to him. But it also tells us that there are things that do not belong to Caesar. There are things that the government cannot take from us. Do you remember when Peter is preaching the gospel after the resurrection and he gets arrested and the government orders him do not preach the gospel and he tells them flat out i have to obey god rather than man now does that mean that if god tells you to drive 100 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone that you are okay to do it no as much as it is possible we are to obey the laws of the land. We are not to be an affront to those that we want to witness to. But there will come a time when we have to acknowledge the fact that the law of God is over the law of man. When they deny you the right to preach the gospel, our obligation is to preach the gospel. So there are two distinct realms You can have all kinds of discussion about what falls into each category. But Jesus looks at them and says, I'm not going to fall into your trap. There are things that you owe to God. And by the way, religious leaders, you're not giving those things to God. That was the point of the three parables. Remember, God has sent his son to collect what was due. The religious leaders should have been preparing the people to recognize and accept the coming Messiah. Instead, they had produced their own power structure and they were not giving God what belonged to God. They wanted to argue about giving to Caesar what belonged to Caesar. Christ wanted to make sure they understood that what belonged to God really did belong to God. That's his side of the discussion. (sighs) When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So group number one, the Pharisees and the Herodians show up to ask him a question. He gives them an answer, and they don't know how to refute it, so they leave. Group number two shows up. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question. I don't know if we had a discussion. If we did, it was a long time ago, so we'll kind of repeat a little bit of it. We talk about different groups of people that were prevalent or that existed in the time of Christ. We spend most of our time talking about the Pharisees. Those Pharisees who were committed to keeping the law to a degree that it was legalism. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were kind of the other side. Today, they would be what we would call liberal Christians. The Sadducees probably took the, five, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, the books of Moses. That's probably what they accepted as the word. They were pretty, well, they weren't like the Pharisees. They were more liberal in their understanding, and they were more sophisticated. They were the aristocrats of the Jewish community. Caiaphas, the high priest, who we'll meet when we get to the trials before the crucifixion, is a Sadducee. The Sadducees were accepted by the Roman government. They were kind of there to keep the people under control. So the high priests were all Sadducees. So they were the sophisticated people of the society. And they did not believe in the resurrection. You live your life and you die. And you're food for worms and that's it. It's interesting because later when Paul is on trial, you remember in the book of Acts, he's on trial and Paul had been a Pharisee. I mean, he just admits it. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming after him, so he uses this idea of the resurrection to get the two of them fighting amongst themselves so that the Pharisees will protect him and let him go. Kind of strange. So, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They've got all of these trick cases that they've been working on to make people look foolish who do believe in the resurrection, and they're going to try one of them on Jesus. And here's the story. Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is over in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a real thing, okay? Let's say that you had two brothers. One brother gets married, and the second one gets married or not, okay? Let's say they do get married. Well, the first brother dies without having any children. He does not have an heir. The second brother is supposed to marry the first brother's widow, and the first child that she produces is not his child legally, but is legally the child of the deceased brother, so that his family line will continue. Makes sense? Sort of. <laughs> we actually see this practiced in the Old Testament, it actually gets people in trouble, yes. Probably, okay? It doesn't really say if the second brother is not married, he is to marry. So it's quite possible this could be his second wife for the sole purpose of producing a child to be the heir of his father's estate. If you remember, Jacob, Tamar married one of the sons, son died, went to the second son, the second son started to have sex with her and didn't do it. And people use that passage to talk about birth control and all of that. I'm not sure it necessarily applies, but it does apply to the fact that he was not fulfilling this commandment that was given, so God zapped him too. Why would you not do it? Well, look at it this way. I've got an older brother, I've got me, When our father dies, he's going to get his cut. I'm going to get my cut. In fact, as the oldest, he's going to get a bigger cut, okay? Now, if he has no children, guess who gets all the estate? Me and my descendants. So I'm not sure that I necessarily would want to take my brother's widow to marry because I don't want to split up the estate, Makes sense, right? And that's what got Onan in trouble. Now, that's the situation as it existed under the Mosaic law. So here's the Sadducees' question Must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left, it left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. Get the picture. Married the first brother, first brother died. Married the second brother, second brother died. Married the third brother, third brother died. Married the fourth brother, fourth brother died. I wouldn't want to marry this woman. It reminds me of a TV show that I watched years ago. I don't know if it was, well, it was one of those shows that had strange stories in it. And this couple had just gotten married and they were in this hotel room. And there was a guy standing outside watching them. And then you notice there was another guy standing outside watching them. And they started talking. And they were both private investigators. And the guy had, that had just gotten married had married several women. And they had accidentally died. And he had got their, their insurance money. Well, the woman had married several guys. And they had accidentally died, and she had gotten their insurance money. So the two of them were debating which one's going to kill the other one first to get the insurance money. That's what I would worry about here, right? Would you really want to be the seventh brother who marries the woman who's bumped off? I well, know she didn't. They just accidentally died. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, you get the picture, right? She shows up to heaven and there's husband number one and husband number two and husband number three and four and five and six and seven. So, who does she go to bed with in heaven? Whose mansion is she sharing in heaven? Now, If it was a man with seven wives, they'd probably let you get away with it. But they're not going to let you get away with a woman with seven husbands. It just doesn't fit. So the question is, I mean, how would you answer this question? Well, I know how we'd answer it. We'd just laugh and walk away. But it was a legitimate question because Moses had commanded them to get married. And now they're married and she has seven husbands in heaven. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He's going to get them for not believing in the resurrection. And then he's going to explain something about marriage in heaven. The real problem is they don't believe in the resurrection. It is interesting to me People who will ask you hypothetical questions about things they don't believe in at all. Because, you know, if I don't believe in something, I can make up some really good questions. I am pretty sure this is a made-up story, right? I'm just pretty confident of that. But if we don't believe something, I can make up the most outlandish stories in the world. And he tells them, your problem is you do not understand the scriptures that teach the resurrection. But then he actually does teach them something new about our relationships in heaven. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We could have an interesting discussion about many of us today, do we know the scriptures and do we know the power of God? The scriptures are easy to see. It's right in front of us. It's just a matter of spending the time to learn them. And I promise you, the Pharisees had spent the time to learn the scriptures. The Sadducees, eh, maybe not quite as much. But he says you do not understand the scriptures and you do not understand what God is capable of doing, which would be in this case the resurrection. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. John Piper in his book About Marriage says marriage is not forever. It's just for life. When we get to heaven, we will not be married. (sighs) Does that bother some of you? Will we? (laughs) I think we need a prayer session right now. (sighs) I've lost it. Will we know our (laughs) earthly spouse? Yes. Will we have relationships with our loved ones? Yes. All that is true. But Jesus is teaching us that in heaven, nobody's getting married. Nobody is married. Why? Why is that the case? Huh? We have a bride of Christ. Hmm. This bothers some people because some people really do like their spouse. (laughs) Unlike somebody in this room who we'll talk with later. But let me tell you what he's teaching us that is phenomenal, okay? In earthly terms, in earthly terms, a good marriage is the most intimate and best relationship you can have or imagine. We have relationships with lots of people. We have friends, we have family, but a good marriage is the highest relationship that we can have or imagine. Guess what? When we get to heaven... Every relationship we have with everyone we know, everybody we're going to know, is going to be of such a level that it will exceed even that. What is it that hinders our relationships today on earth? I can tell you one big problem. It's called sin. My sin, your sin, everybody's sin. I enter a friendship with the idea of what's in it for me, what can I get out of it, and as soon as it doesn't work, I'm punching out. I meet people, and I've got my sinful intentions, and that's what I strive, and all of that clouds every relationship that we have today, even marriage. I was listening to a sermon a couple of weeks ago about marriage, And he said, you know, people come to him, he's a pastor, and said, you know, I'm just not sure I'm compatible with this person. And he says, what does that mean? There's one sinner marrying another sinner. You're not compatible at all. Get used to it. Because we're sinners. When we get to heaven, that taint of sin is finally going to be removed. And every relationship, every relationship, will be of the highest order that we can't even imagine in the here and now. What we see now in relationships is just God's grace giving us a glimpse of what we will have when we get to heaven. So it isn't, oh, I'm not gonna have the greatest relationship because of some problem in heaven. No, it's that all of our relationships are going to be so great. Now, I'm sure some smart aleck would want to ask the question, does that mean we're not gonna have sex in heaven? And the answer is probably not. We're just not. But you know what? That's going to be okay. We have trouble believing that in our society, we do. So what does he say? You are wrong because you do not know either the Scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice that it does not say you are angels. Somewhere we got this idea, I don't know if it's from It's a Wonderful Life or whatever, (laughs) that somehow we die, we go to heaven, and a bell rings, and we get our wings, and we become angels. No. No. Angels are separate created beings, but every angel that ever existed was created. They didn't birth baby angels. They didn't. There were enough of them. So we will be like angels. We will not be married. So what's the answer to the question? The woman shows up in heaven, here's husband number one, here's husband number two, husband number three, dot, 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 husband number seven, she gives uh, husband number one a hug and says, I love you, and down the row, but she doesn't have a husband. So that's the easy part of the question. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Notice what he says. I am the God of, and he lists the patriarchs. If I said... George Washington was the President of the United States, we would all say that's a true statement. It is a past tense verb. He was at some point in time. If I said George Washington is the President of the United States, you'd look at me strange. Why? First off, you know he's dead. And secondly, you know somebody else is occupying the White House right now. If he said I God speaking, I was the God of Abraham, we would go, when Abraham was alive, he followed God. So God was the God of Abraham. That would make sense if Abraham is no more. But God didn't say that. He said, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They are still in existence, and God is still their God. God is not the God of people that are dead, as in extinct, as in annihilated, as in no longer exist. He was their God when they were here. He is their God right now. And that's what God is is telling the people. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Wow, I hadn't thought of that. It is interesting. It doesn't say the Sadducees were necessarily astounded at his teaching. It said the crowd. You see what's going on, right? He's got this crowd of people that he's talking to. And these different groups are coming up to him and saying, I've got a question for you trying to trap him. And the crowd goes, wow, he took care of that question. Yeah, he handled that question. They were astounded. The Sadducees, eh, I'm not so sure. Group number three. Ah, we're back to the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees, this is kind of this tag team, wrestling or whatever it is. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're over there plotting in the corner. What's a good question? And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, to us, this doesn't really seem like a trap. This is actually a question that the Pharisees argued amongst themselves at length. What is the most important commandment of God. Is it this one? Is it that one? Why would it be this one? I mean, we have these discussions. Well, we don't have these discussions today because we don't worry too much about too many things. But, you know, you go into medieval times and they would list you know, the seven deadly sins and they would discuss among themselves which of these is most important. You know is it pride? That's what most people think. Pride is the source of lots of bad stuff. There were medieval theologians who thought sloth was the worst thing because if you did have sloth, regardless of what your other problem was, you weren't going to do anything about it because you were too lazy. So you had to get over that so you could deal with the pride. So they had these debates among themselves. That's what the Pharisees did. So Which is the greatest commandment? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now it is interesting because in the book of Mark, when we have this exact same situation, the person asking the question says, Wow. That's the right answer. He gave them the right answer. And in this particular case, the Pharisee asking the question acknowledged that it was the right question. In fact, it kind of implies in the Mark account that they left because they were worried that the Pharisees were going to start believing what Jesus said. So, what is the greatest commandment? We could have a lesson on each of these verses and still not begin to understand everything that is entailed in this passage. This is Jesus speaking to us today. Ready? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What is the heart? We've had this discussion numerous times. In biblical Terminology: The heart is not the organ inside of your body that pumps blood. They did know about the heart, but that's not what they're talking. The heart was the center of your being. That's who you really are. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. That explains, that demonstrates, that shows who you love, who you hate, who you eh. This demonstrates it. And what is to be the center of all of that? Love the Lord your God. This is just taken from the Old Testament. He did not make this up. He could have made it up, he is God, but he didn't do it. Why? Because God made it up in the Old Testament and he's just telling them, love the Lord your God with all of your being. Now I might add, this is what drove Martin Luther crazy. Martin Luther is a monk and he looks at this passage and he goes, you know, I don't love the Lord with all my mind. I don't do that with all my heart. I don't do that. So he'd go to confession. For hours he would go to confession. Hours and hours. And he would, was driving the monk that was hearing his confession crazy. They finally told him, Martin, go away. Come back when you've really done something bad. But he knew he wasn't doing this. And that's what drove him to understand the book of Romans when it says there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last because it is through the righteousness of Christ given to us that we can begin to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. What does it mean to love the Lord our God with our minds? We like to think about things. I think about things too much. Really, I do. What would it mean to think with our mind centered on God? That means we trace everything back to God. How does God understand this? How does God work in this area? How does God, you know, there are those who want us to believe that accepting, well, any religion, but Christianity, that happens to be our flavor in the United States, is turning your mind off. No. We are told to take our minds and apply them to scripture. But our minds have to start with something. You're either going to start with a God who created the universe, who told us in his word how that universe operates, or you're going to start with everything just happened. And we made up all this religion stuff. It is interesting, I read a book review this week about a book about atheism, written by an atheist. And his comment was, most modern atheists are nuts because they truly believe, and this is an atheist writing this, they truly believe that they can keep Christian morality and throw away the Christian religion. If you're a true atheist, and remember, this is an atheist writing this, you've got to believe we're just animals. And all of that morality goes out the window. So he wants to believe in something. He just can't bring himself to do it. It's odd. But where do we start our thinking? Do we start with God and build from that? Or do we start from us and build from that? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But there's a second one. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments are all the law and the prophets. Depend all the law and the prophets. Notice what it's not saying. Okay? Notice what it is not saying. Here's the Old Testament law. Ten commandments. Charlton Heston, bringing them down from the mountaintop. Throw all that away. And I'll give you a new commandment, and that new commandment is love. That's what many people believe today. They believe what this passage is telling us is the only commandment is love. And all of that Old Testament stuff goes away. That is not what he is teaching right here. What he is teaching is that all of this... Is encompassed in love. How do we demonstrate love for our neighbor? Well, we let them do whatever they want to do. Hmm, no. What does love mean? Well, let's see. Thou shalt not kill. Love means you don't kill somebody. We're all agreement on that? And let's throw Christ in the middle here, okay? You say you haven't killed anybody, but I say if you're angry with them, you've murdered them in your heart. Love says you don't show anger to people because that gets traced back to murder. Huh. Thou shalt not steal, Thy neighbor's stuff. How do we show love to someone? We don't steal their stuff. We don't steal their objects. We don't steal their time. We don't steal their spouses. Oh, wait, there's a separate run for that. Adultery. Don't do that either. But I love them. No. Apart from the scripture, love becomes this nebulous thing that simply encompasses anything that I want today. If I want it and you love me, you will want me to have it. Fill in the blank. There was a Christian singer, I will not mention her name, who made the comment as she was divorcing her husband, I know divorce is wrong, but God told me this was okay. (laughs) We only understand love in the context of God's word not apart from God's word. So we have to be educated by the Holy Spirit to understand what it means to love our neighbor. And the scriptures actually give us lots of information about that. I mean, we can start with the simple stuff, serving. We're told to serve other people. We are not to be the master, we are to be the servant. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you need to be the servant of all. So, how do we demonstrate love? We serve other people. We share the gospel with other people. Wait a minute. What if they don't want to hear it? Well, we do it in a kind fashion. We don't beat them over the head with it. We don't throw it at them. We don't pick up our bible and throw it in their face and yell and scream at them for being a pagan fill in your blank. We do it out of love. But let me just ask the question. If you really love someone and you believed that their path would end in destruction, wouldn't You, out of love, tell them to turn away? I mean, your neighbor gets in his car and he starts to drive off, and you know that at the end of the street, the bridge is gone, and there is a thousand foot cliff, and it's a foggy day, and he can't see very far, and you walk up to him and say, well, I could tell him the bridge is out, but I don't want to offend his driving habits. So you say, oh, okay, and off the cliff he goes. Is that love? But you see, in today's society, we actually have turned that into not being loving if you bother him. You don't want him to feel bad about the condition of the road. Now, once again, do we do this out of love and respect? And Oh, yes. We don't take baseball bats and we don't beat people over the head. But, love says we serve and that service gives us an in to share the gospel that's the order it usually happens in (sighs) on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets now the question is well we're under grace we don't have to do these no This is Jesus speaking to us. There is no commandment, there is no teaching that says, ah, now that you're a Christian, you can say to heck with everybody else. No, that's not there. Now, if you take this first and say, I've got to do these things before I will be acceptable to Christ, you're in trouble. You will be like Martin Luther, because you know you can't do it. So we accept the gospel ourselves, we accept the teachings of Christ ourselves, and then we are in a position to truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our mind. I keep wanting to throw in strength because that's in another verse, but it's not here. So what's the conclusion of all of this. First off, you can try to trap Jesus, but it's not going to work. Let's just accept that right off the bat, right? We keep thinking that I've got to argue with God and argue with Jesus and somehow I'm gonna convince him that his word is not true. You're going to lose that battle, okay? You're just gonna lose it. As uh, Rich Mullins said once time, one time in a concert we went to, It doesn't matter if the pitcher hits the stone or the stone hits the pitcher. It's bound to be bad for the pitcher. God's going to win. Don't mess with that. Secondly, when we start thinking apart from God, we can come up with some bizarre hypothetical questions that we think somehow proves God doesn't exist. There is no resurrection because here's seven brothers to prove it. No. Why do we do that? Because we do not understand the Scripture and we do not understand the power of God. Let's just face it. I've said in here before, how much of the Scripture do we need to know? And the answer is more. Wherever you are, you could be a graduate of the best seminaries in the world and you need to learn more. You can be a third grader and you need to learn more. As we progress in the Christian life, we continue to learn more about God through the scriptures and more about the power of God. That's our life. That's our life. And what does it mean? What does it mean to follow after God, to love Him above all else, and to love our neighbors better than we love ourselves? Oh. We didn't even talk about the ourselves part, did we? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the scripture that you have given us to teach us. I pray, Lord, that you would guide and lead each of us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love you more than all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.